York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. How did the American general who saved the Union and went on to serve two terms in the White House and very nearly three end up memorialized with the largest mausoleum in the Western Hemisphere? We are going to answer that question today with our guest, Louis Pacone. I am your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the hat to everybody watching via our YouTube channel. This hat, by the way, I chose today because it's a New York Yankees hat. And Ulysses S. Grant, our subject today, was, of course, the biggest, baddest Yankee of them all. And the best, the general who crushed the slave states and, as president, beat the KKK. Lewis is a three-peat guest, and today he brings us Grant's Tomb, the epic death of Ulysses S. Grant, and the making of an American pantheon. Lewis and I previously caught up at the Church of the Presidents in Long Branch, New Jersey. Grant also worshiped there. He has a tie to Long Branch. He had a cottage there. Lewis's previous books were Where the Presidents Were Born, The History and Preservation of the Presidential Birthplaces, and The President is Dead, The Extraordinary Stories of the Presidential Deaths, Final Days, Burials, and Beyond. What kind of beyond could a dead president have? Well, you have to pick up Lewis's book to find out. You can also pick up this book because in it, he examines how Americans of the Gilded Age chose to memorialize one of the most significant leaders in history. And how that man, Ulysses S. Grant, faced a death sentence from cancer that someone else might have just surrendered to in despair. Grant knew that he was penniless, didn't want to leave his family, especially his beloved wife, Julia, with nothing. So he dug in his heels, he picked up his pen, and he decided that he was going to sit there and write his memoirs with every hour of his life that he had left. The result is just an epic book something that he was determined to do to provide for his family, even as he waited for the bell to toll for him. Learn more about Louis Pacone at lewispacone.com. You can find him on Tiffle, which is my shorthand for Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. I wish we could meet up in person, but thanks to this interview, we can catch up with Louis and we can visit virtually Grant's tomb. I'm joined on the line by Louis Pacone. He's the author of Grant's Tomb, The Epic Death of Ulysses S. Grant, and The Making of an American Pantheon. Welcome back to the History Author Show, Lewis. It's great to be back, Dean. Thanks for having me. Well, as people could probably tell, if they look at our Twitter feeds or they see the smiles on our faces right now, we love talking about presidential history with each other. Yeah. When you meet somebody that loves presidents as much as you and I do and loves their history and what it can tell us about our world, you want to share that with people. And in the case of Grant's tomb, here's this monument that has an amazing history all by itself. So we definitely wanted to share that with people. But there is a lingering question that dates all the way back to vaudeville that you have gotten a little bit, I won't say tired of hearing because you're a nice guy, you're very tolerant and patient, but you get this question, who is buried in Grant's tomb? The old Groucho Marx routine and the clip that you told me reminded you of was from the simpsons of all things so we're going to roll that for people people on youtube can watch it people at home it is a shapely model she's standing there next to a car that they're raffling off and one man after another comes up to her to put their hat in the ring so let's watch that clip do you come with the car oh you <laughs> do you come with the car Oh, you. <laughs> so, Lewis, what is the connection? What is the connection to Lewis Pacone between Groucho Marx and Ulysses S. Grant? So, yeah, the reason that I get reminded of, uh, of that Simpsons clip is uh, invariably when I mention that I've written a book about Grant's tomb, uh, someone says to me, well, who's buried in Grant's tomb with the Groucho Marx line? And... Uh, at first, I, I kind of like think of myself when I first see that clip, I think of myself as the woman there by the car saying, 
oh you he he and then and then uh, then uh, the next guy comes up and says the same thing but i've started to reframe my thinking and i'm thinking about it more from homer's perspective and the other poor schlub's perspective uh and what the reality is is that many people that's all they know about grant's tomb is groucho marx's line and uh some people don't even remember that it is a joke they think that it's true. Who is buried in Grant's tomb? They think that there's some mystery to it. Uh, so one of the things that was really on my mind in writing this book is really explaining to people what is so significant about Grant's tomb, that it's so much more than a tired old Groucho Marx gag. Uh, and I'll just say one thing too, in my research, I found uh, that it wasn't even Groucho Marx that came up with that joke. He first started using it on You Bet Your Life, which went from a radio show to a TV show. But I found in my research that uh, that Shirley Temple had used the line in a 1933 clip called Dora's Dunkin' Donuts. What is it, Shirley? Please, what general with five letters and his name was Baird and Grant's tomb? What general with five letters and his name is Baird and Grant's tomb? See, Lee. Uh, so about 20 years before Groucho used it. So not only did he put this stain on Grant's tomb forever or build this misconception, but he stole the joke. The joke, by the way, the joke behind the joke is that nobody's buried in it, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Technically, nobody's buried in it because Ulysses and Julia are both in above ground sarcophagus. So they're not technically buried in there, but obviously the joke is like uh, Groucho used to say it after some uh, uh, some hapless person got no other questions right. So he kind of threw him like the softball. Who's buried in Grant's tomb? Could you at least that get that right? <laughs> but but you're right. Technically, nobody is. <laughs> <laughs> now, talking about writing jokes, let's talk about you writing books, because you've already written an entire book about presidential deaths. It's called The President is Dead. Now you've followed up here with Grant's tomb. So people may get a little worried about you, Lucas, <laughs> and think, well, what is with this maudlin guy? Why is he obsessed with presidential deaths? He has a weird <laughs> fascination. But that's definitely not the case. You definitely want to celebrate their lives. And that's certainly what that mausoleum does. It tells people, even if it was some sci-fi epic like Thundar the Barbarian, or if it was Planet of the Apes and they returned and Colonel Taylor saw it, they would say, wow, th this guy mattered to somebody. And they would see those words up there, let us have peace. That tells you what kind of man is not quite buried inside <laughs> in his sarcophagus. So what do you say to people when they think, hey, this is a little bit morbid? Yeah. <laughs> well, one I like to explore the presidential stories that go underexplored to me. Like I always get a little bit frustrated when I read a presidential biography and after the presidency, they kind of sum up his final years and his death in the last couple of paragraphs and then it's done. Because for some presidents and specifically Grant, there's a fascinating story in that final year and in that death. But, there's a, but then there's also the, the public memory aspect, too, with the graves and with the funerals and remembrances. And then the history of those places that kind of ties into the public memory and how that shifts over time. Uh, and Grant's tomb is just a great example of that. Let's go right to those final months, because you start there. You start chapter one of Grant's tomb with the title, General Grant is Doomed. Here's a man who he was a simple guy or not a pretentious guy at all. He was always nice. He would walk into a hotel that they wouldn't know who he was and he would have to explain it when he first comes to Washington, D.C. during the war. He was not at all one of these don't you know who I am fellows. He was just really down to earth, loved horses. He probably liked horses or was better with horses than anybody I've ever read about. And this is in an era when everybody rides horses. Yeah, and doesn't have airs even when he goes to Appomattox Courthouse. Here he is all dressed down as a private's jacket on. How does that odyssey of his fight against cancer in those last months, writing with the ultimate publisher's deadline, inspire you as an author? And how do you hope it'll inspire readers? Uh, well, as an author, it's just, it's, it's extremely inspiring. One, the reason that he wrote. He wasn't writing to get his story out. He was writing to publish a book so... 
his family would have income after he died because he was bankrupt and cancer-ridden. He found out towards the end of his life. And that really became the motivation for writing this book that the public had been clamoring for for years. So he sets out writing the book in his final eight, nine months of life. And he was laser focused on finishing his memoirs before, like you called it, the ultimate deadline. He knows that he's facing death. It's inoperable throat and mouth cancer. Uh, and he creates what is, the, what is really considered the best memoir by any president. Now, it's not necessarily a presidential memoir because he really just covers his Civil War experience. So he writes this incredibly popular as well as an excellent memoir, but also it's 400,000 words. It's not like a quick read. Uh, some of it was repurposed from other short articles that he'd written. Uh, but I actually looked, I've written three books. When I added up all the words from, from all three of them, it was just over 400,000 words, like 405,000 words and three books that <laughs> took me like 10 years to write. <laughs> so that's just incredibly inspiring for me as a writer, but well as help inspire me to tell Grant's story, just knowing that he'd gone through that. It, it, I mean, it might sound silly, but it really did help inspire me to help tell this side of his story that is lesser known. Well, when you think that your subject is sitting there unable to speak in such pain, can't eat, and yet he committed himself to writing. How can you say, oh, I don't feel good today. Yeah, yeah. It's nice outside. Yeah, I don't feel like it. You feel like a <laughs> complete jerk if you yeah. did that. So it is motivation. And I yeah. was thinking as you spoke about his laser focus, I thought about how they once described Grant as a man who looked as if he had made up his mind to put his head through a brick wall and he was going to do it. So yeah. you get an idea about the man in the war by looking at him when he's older, he's out of the presidency and he's fighting for his life. He knows he's going to die. This project is the only thing keeping him alive. Yeah. And then we have the story of the rise of this amazing mausoleum, this mausoleum that's the largest mm -hmm. in the Western hemisphere. If you've ever tried to remodel your house, say with your family or just you one-on-one -on -one with your wife, everyone has different opinions. You change your own mind. So imagine building something on that grand scale. Grant was not from New York. Everybody yeah. wanted to have him in their town, in their city, in their state to honor the great general. How does he end up in Manhattan? Yeah, like you said, Grant lived there in his final years. As he was getting nearer death, towards the end, he ended up moving temporarily north of Saratoga Springs to Mount McGregor to a cabin there for the better weather, hopefully that it would be therapeutic. But as death is getting closer for him, he tries to address the topic with his family. And by this point, he can't speak. He's just writing notes. So he suggests some locations. St. Louis, where he had met Julia. Illinois, where he lived in Galena. West Point Military Academy. And New York City. And he says, because they showed me so much kindness uh, during my hardship, during his uh, bankruptcy, and during his, uh, during his final illness. But Julia can't bring herself to talk about it with him. So he just leaves it to her. So this is yours to figure out. Here's my... So, Smart husband. Yeah, yeah. Gives it to her. So here's my <laughs> suggestions. Uh, meanwhile, there's all these different locations that are vying, like you said, vying for the honor of having Grant buried in their city, uh, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., New York City, uh, as well as there's this national opinion that Grant, this great national hero that held the union together, should be buried on national ground uh, at Arlington Cemetery or Old Soldier's Home in Washington, D.C. Uh, but one, Julia chooses New York City because that's where she lives. She can visit the tomb often. And uh, one critical point is that uh, at West Point Military Academy, she can't be buried besides Grant. They have regulations that, uh, that only Grant can be buried there, not Julia, which is unacceptable to her and unacceptable to the family. But finally, uh, the city of New York, uh, starting with the mayor, Mayor Grace, is very aggressive in, uh, uh, in trying to get the family to choose New York City. They send a telegram to her on the day that Grant dies, offering their city, and uh, they offer to take... Grant's son, Fred, on a tour, you pick the location, 
So they bring them to Central Park, they take him out to dinner, they bring him to a couple different locations. And then finally, they bring him to Riverside Park, which if anyone is familiar with New York, Riverside Park is this long, narrow park that is on the west side of the city. Uh, and it extends from like the 70s up to like 125th Street, which is well, well north of any of the activity in New York at this time, uh, 1885. Uh, but Grace kind of pushes Riverside Park uh, because he thinks that's where New York City, that's where the cultural center, because it keeps going further and further north over the years, that's where it's going to end up. And having Grant's tomb there is going to really solidify that as the cultural center. That's going to drive the tourists there. Uh, so he so he convinces the family. The family chooses New York City, and that's how he ends up in the city and Riverside Park. It's nice that they were thinking far ahead and thinking of people visiting, because that is certainly something that does happen. People do want to visit. It becomes a well, it still is a tourist attraction. So yeah. good on them putting it in the right place. You wouldn't want to see it somewhere that was out of the way. And I, I don't want to name some of the other presidential spots, but they're really beautiful. And yet they are hard to get to. You have to be going there to get there. You're not just going to wander by. I saw it my whole life, whether I was growing up on the New Jersey side or when I was driving into the city for work. And you, you can't help but see it. And just even with the buildings have grown up around it, it's still such a majestic place. And like I mentioned at the beginning, you know that was somebody important there. And the fact that he has it in New York City is noteworthy because he's the nation's most high-profile Republican at the time. And New York's a Democrat city. That means we have Tammany Hall. We have Tammany Hall Democrats in the city and the state. And if you don't grease some palms, if you don't go through Tammany, you are not going to get anything built. You're not going to, you're not going to have a house. You're not going to have them put out your house where it catches fire. It's a tough yeah. period of the Gilded Age. <laughs> so the fact yeah. that they all come together to build that is really nice because we get to look back and say they, they did love him and he yeah. was worthy of affection, especially since we had a century of a lot of bitter Southern historians talking smack about Ulysses S. Grant. So yeah. the fact that he gets a monument and we're seeing a lot of their monuments that ones that were put up specifically to stick it in the face of the freedmen, of the people who had been enslaved, that starts happening in the Gilded Age. Even though as historians, we wanna see history preserved, the message to me is Grant's still there and his, his monument is still there. And that's really a nice thing. And I'm yeah. glad you wrote this book to tell the story of it. It has its own story. Yeah, but uh, I do have to say that it didn't come easy for Grant's tomb. It was <laughs> 12 years in the making. There were politics involved. Originally, everybody was on board, whether Democrat or Republican, everybody's on board to build this magnificent tomb. And really, that is another reason why New York City was chosen, because Mayor Grace promised this magnificent tomb. So temporarily, they put him in this small little tomb that looks more like a pizza oven. But the promise is, that's not going to be for long. We're going to have him in this beautiful tomb, and the money's going to come in. And so they create the Grant Monument Association, and it's filled with Gilded Age luminaries, Vanderbilt, J.P. Morgan, Chester Arthur is part of the Grant Monument Association. And originally, fundraising starts to come in. So right away, they come up with an incredibly audacious target of $1 million to raise for this, which is well beyond what's ever been paid for any sort of publicly funded memorial. The first couple of weeks look good, but then after that, fundraising starts to drop off. Uh, these Gilded Age luminaries, they're doing other things. <laughs> J.P. Morgan is busy. <laughs> Cornelius Vanderbilt is busy. Uh, so attention starts to fade away uh, by the board members. Uh, donations start to taper off. There's uh, people outside of New York City that really start to get almost, uh, they're angry and they really try to sabotage the effort. There's articles written, don't donate to New York City. This should really be in a national place. Uh, and there's other monument efforts going on too. Now at this point, there wasn't even any statues of Grant built. There wasn't any equestrian statues of Grant. So after he dies, uh, along with the tomb fundraising effort, there's all of these other monument fundraising efforts in, in Leavenworth, Kansas, and in St. Louis, uh, and in Philadelphia to fund Grant monuments. So people are also confused uh, about which one they should donate to. 
and there's design issues. It takes five years to come up with the design, all these false starts of design competitions that go nowhere. So it didn't come easy, but you're right. 12 years later, everything came to fruition and they did create this, this magnificent Gilded Age monument that says almost as much about the era as the man too, because it's the biggest tomb in American history before or since. Now, Lewis, I have to stop briefly and say, we're speaking about the Gilded Age, things people know about presidents in the Gilded Age, if they know nothing else, is that they all had a beard. And now <laughs> I'll throw up a picture here of us in our interview at the Ocean Township Museum. You were clean shaven. I was clean shaven. And now we see you with this beard, which looks like not a Gilded Age president to me, but I'm going to throw up another picture here. James G. <laughs> Blaine. Correct yeah, me if I'm that. wrong. That looks more like a James wow. G. Blaine beard. And James G. Blaine does not attain the presidency. He gets nominated as a Republican. And can you imagine, he's about the only Republican that loses during those Gilded Age yeah. races. Well, Harrison girl, wins yeah. once anyway, but gets kicked out. So really the only yeah. one who, who didn't quite make it was Blaine to the White House. So, well, what's the story? Is that just reading so much of this that you decided to have the beard, to, to feel Grant, feel like the itch of the beard? You know what? I really think, well, one, it's lockdown now, so I'm not going out as much <laughs> and uh, so not shaving as much, but I really did. Maybe I just started to embody uh, and really just take it all in, writing about Grant for so much during this past year. He just started to become a part of me. <laughs> You're enjoying my conversation with the bearded Louis Picone. He's talking about his latest presidential book. It's called Grant's Tomb, the epic death of Ulysses S. Grant and the making of an American pantheon. You can find him at lewispicone.com. And remember, he's a Tiffle author. He's everywhere on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You can also find him at lewispicone.com. Lewis is certainly someone who's exciting to follow on social media. And that brings me to my quote, because we joined with presidential historian Candace Millard, who's the author of Destiny of the Republic. She wrote about your book, in his moving new book, Louis Picone reveals the fascinating and forgotten tale behind the creation of a memorial befitting Ulysses S. Grant. Now, Louis, you and I worked with Candace Millard and the fine folks at the James A. Garfield National Historic Site to get those waysides. He was the only president whose place of death, well, I'm sorry, his place of death is in New Jersey that is marked, but his assassination was not marked. And this is something that struck us as people who love history as quite tragic. And so it was very rewarding for us to do. It was. And you, in fact, right there behind you, I'll, get, I'll switch the view here. So you have a minute to, to maybe turn your camera a little bit and show people. <laughs> Can you see it there? And okay. that is an artifact. That's not a copy. That's a, that's a one of a kind. And that's one that has a mistake. And they were kind yeah. enough at the James A. Garfield National Historic Site to send that to Lewis. So yeah. that, that's something that has a special place there. You got to put that right over your mantle. Yep. I've got to thank my wife, Francesca, there. for uh, so, uh, <laughs> so she's my Julia, my first lady. Uh, but she's allowing me to kind of slowly take over this room with what I like to call my Louis L. Picone Presidential Library. <laughs> you can see the books behind me. But yeah, but I think that's my all-time favorite presidential artifact. Uh, because of the typo, yeah, they had, to, uh, they had to replace it. They were going to throw out this wayside. Uh, so they were nice enough to give it to me. Well, my wife, my first lady, my Julia Cappy, <laughs> is very happy that you didn't say, hey, Dean, do you want this? Because yeah. we have a little bit too much in the way of presidential memorabilia around the house. Yeah. In fact, let me grab something here. This is a Wheaton bottle. I was telling you about this. There's, there's also, I believe, one of Grant as the general. And there's a company in South Jersey that made these nice little historical artifacts. And it says right <laughs> on the back, it says, President of the United States, 18th president. And it says... Shiloh, Vicksburg, it has some of the places where, where he fought during the Civil War. Caesar from the Hudson. Now, why would they call him the Hudson when, of course, as we said, he wasn't from New York, but it's yeah. because Grant's tomb is right there on the Hudson River. So that was a cool artifact that I wanted to, to whip out here and show you because I have all of them. They did from George Washington yeah. through George H.W. Bush, <laughs> and I, I collected them all, as the ads used to say. Got... They went out of business, so there's no... There's no more. You can't get you got the whole set. Yeah. I just got something cool. I just got this cool postcard of Grant's tomb from eBay that the postcards from 1942 and the back inscription of it just says one word. Wow. 
exclamation point. <laughs> I'm like, that is so cool. <laughs> wow, someone was blown away by it. By the way, you say in your book, and I want to get to this about Grant's tomb, you say, like the man, Ulysses S. Grant's tomb is resilient and it has endured. He's sort of like Chumbawamba. People remember that song, <laughs> I get knocked down and I get up again. That's Ulysses S. Grant to me when I was reading this. And you told me that as a scholar, as a presidential historian, that is the first time that anyone has ever compared Ulysses S. Grant yep. to Chumbawamba. Is that true? That is absolutely true, but it's a great comparison. I like to think of Grant's final battle, almost like Rocky going out there for the final round, one more round. Uh, and yeah, that was just his final battle to write the book uh, before his death. Uh, but you're right, Grant, just like the tomb, has endured a lot of failings, a lot of stumbles, but he kept coming out on top. And it's just like the tomb. The tomb has had a fascinating story of its own. So that's why the book really isn't a Grant biography. It starts off as a Grant biography that final year. But the story really is about Grant's tomb. And there's really some amazing parallels too, because as Grant's legacy has had some ups and downs, when the tomb was first built for the first 20 years, it was the number one most visited attraction in New York City. Statue of Liberty was number two. So 600,000 people per year in its peak would go see Grant's tomb, uh, international visitors. This was one of, the, uh, one of the main stops that they had to go see. Postcards. When the postcard industry really started to take off, Grant's tomb was one of the images that was popular. So it really kind of spread the image of Grant's tomb all throughout the world. When dignitaries would come to New York City, they would always go to Grant's tomb. And just like today, like the Statue of Liberty will be lit up in different colors, uh, depending on different occasions. That's what would happen with Grant's tomb. They would decorate it if there was a Japanese dignitary that was coming or a British dignitary that was coming. They would decorate Grant's tomb accordingly. There was movies made about Grant's tomb. There was one uh, by, by Thomas Edison that was almost like Sleepless in Seattle, where this lonely guy puts an ad in the paper to meet him at the most iconic site in New York City, which was Grant's tomb at the time. So it's just incredibly popular as is Grant. It also appears in some of those dystopian films that are closer to our time. The Warriors, New Jack City, it was used as a backdrop. Yep. So when you hint at there that it fell into hard times, it really did. It, it had some really, really horrible things happening there, things that make you angry that you cover in the book where people just desecrated it and they didn't take care of it. They didn't value it. And when you value Grant yeah. and when you value history, that has to make you mad. And you realize that they could have done with Grant's tomb what they did with the old Penn Station and just knocked it down and put yeah. some monstrosity there. And in fact, those glass 60s seats that they have outside benches, I guess you'd say. The benches, there's, yeah. There's Ooh, the benches. You think of how easily we could have lost it, how the history really did yeah. go down the tubes almost. It's so important that you write Grant's tomb and remind us of people like one fellow is Frank Scaturo, the other is George Craig. They helped restore dignity to this sacred place. As you can see there, their last names aren't Grant. They may not even have relatives who fought in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. I would think that that fellow whose last name is Italian, I'm just going to guess that he certainly had ancestors that weren't even here at the time of the Civil War, much as mine weren't here at the time mm -hmm. of the Civil War. Mine and too. yet those people pitched in and they, they helped restore some of that desecration. So give them, give them their propers, as Aretha Franklin would say. Tell us yeah. a little bit about the part they played in restoring the glory to Grant. Yeah. Well, first, I guess we need to talk about the really dismal period in the 60s through the 90s. Again, as Grant's reputation had dropped with the rise of the lost cause mythology that really raised Lee's stature. Grant's stature goes down. And by the 50s and 60s, at the time of who's buried in Grant's tomb, uh, Grant's reputation is at an all-time low. And the tomb just follows. At the same time, New York City is also evolving too. Uh, and crime is rising. One thing that I do is, uh, is I parallel murder statistics and visitation statistics. And they just go in opposite directions in New York City as it becomes more dangerous uh, then less people are visiting Grant's tomb. Uh, so it gets covered in graffiti. It's vandalized on a daily basis. There's more gang members and criminals and nefarious activity 
than visitors going to the tomb. People become scared. National Park employees become scared to go there too. It becomes a place, one, if no visitors are showing up, how come I'm showing up? Uh, so it really starts to go downhill. And at one point, uh, the uh, uh, first the state government and then federal government tries to have Grant's body removed, uh, that it's so bad there. It's become this joke. It's become this bad joke that Grant's tomb is so dismal. Uh, so first there's congressional efforts to move Grant's tomb. Then the family steps in uh, to also sue the to sue the National Park Service to have the tomb restored or have Grant moved. Uh, but there's also these individuals. Uh, so there's Mr. Craig, who just begins this noble effort to try to raise money to save Grant's tomb. At the time, it was estimated that it's going to take about $12 million, and he raises about $250. But he's starting. He's getting people thinking about it, at least. Uh, but then along comes Frank Scatoro. And I'll just start with the props. Uh, I've researched birthplaces. I've researched uh, presidential graves, dozens of them. I've rarely come across an instance where one individual, one private citizen has done so much to save an important presidential site like Frank Scatoro has. Uh, I got to interview him for the book. It was a big honor for me to interview him, to help tell his story, uh, to help integrate the story uh, into Grant's tomb. So <clears throat> Frank, is a young law student uh, that, uh, that goes to school, just coincidentally, at Columbia University, which is just a stone's throw from Grant's tomb. Frank is someone like us, into the presidents, into history, uh, but he becomes, at a very young age, enamored with Ulysses S. Grant and, and believes that his legacy has been tarnished, that he deserves reinterpretation. Uh, so, so coincidentally, he ends up at Columbia University, Seems natural, he begins to gravitate towards Grant's tomb in the very dark years of Grant's tomb, he's there. And what he sees disturbs him as it would anyone. Uh, but he starts volunteering there, he starts giving tours. Uh, and he begins to raise awareness of the horrible conditions there. That every day when you show up, there's, uh, there's broken bottles, there's drug paraphernalia, uh, even worse, that's there. Uh, but there's graffiti all over the place. There's litter. Uh, there's remnants of homeless people sleeping at the tomb every day. There, there's a horrible scent to the tomb. Uh, so he begins to raise awareness, really doesn't make very good progress. At one point, they ended up moving him to Castle Clinton, which if anyone knows New York City, that's about as far on the island that you can possibly place someone from Grant's tomb. But he persists and he ends up writing letters to, uh, to the mayor, to the governor, to President Bill Clinton at the time, uh, to the Secretary of the Interior. And then finally, he is interviewed by, uh, by a New York news station. And on air, it's a Sunday morning show, he's showing them the tomb. And look at this. And perhaps that's one of the first time that many that many people in New York actually see the tomb because by this time, no one's really going there anymore. Uh, so it's this bad joke, but it's out of sight, out of mind as well. Uh, but now people see this tomb and then boom, that becomes the, uh, the flashpoint moment. Uh, and uh, after that, uh, funding starts to come in. Uh, Frank, is laid off from his position. <laughs> so uh, uh, after this whistleblowing incident, he's laid off. Uh, but the funding starts to come in. And uh, as well, New York City starts to become safer too. Uh, and the murder statistics uh, uh, start to taper off in the mid 90s. And in the early 90s, it looks like Grant's tomb is rock bottom. There's actually a day in 1993 uh, that workers show up at the tomb and they look down and they just see all this garbage and even worse at the front of the tomb. They look up and they see that someone strung a garbage pail up on the flagpole in front of the tomb. It's like rock bottom. It's ridiculous and tragic at the same time. Uh, but that's 1993. By 1997, 
it's rededicated, it's restored, it's secured, it's, uh, it's been cleaned up. And it's just an amazing turnaround. And so much, I mean, there was a National Park Service too that also did so much to restore it. But it all started with Frank. Uh, so I really want to give credit to him uh, and give those props. But I also want to mention someone else that I got to interview for the book, uh, who is, uh, is, uh, is Ulysses Grant Dietz, who is uh, Grant's great-great-grandson who also became very involved in the tomb. And I got to integrate his story into the book too. He was very generous and very candid with his story about also his coming of age. Because when he was younger, that's when Grant's reputation was at its lowest and he wasn't necessarily that proud of being Grant's great, great grandson, but he also had this epiphany and, uh, and just had this change of heart as Grant's reputation started to become restored and Grant's tomb parallels that story. He's an author as well, isn't he? Frank Scatoro is. Yeah, yeah, Frank Scatoro is an author uh, and wrote President Grant Reconsidered. Uh, so, yeah, that's an, uh, it's a reassessment of Grant's legacy. So this really has become uh, just so much of who Frank is. Uh, it's a wonderful to, book, too, and I recommend it. How great to be able to restore the legacy of somebody who is descended from Ulysses S. Grant and tell him... Hey, you know, Dietz, you should be proud of that first name that probably was hard for you to tell teachers when you were a kid. To be able to give that not only to us, who wherever we came from, Grant is part of our story. We are the Americans that he fought to save the Union for, but also to people who knew him so well from a family perspective. Even if you never met him, obviously, <laughs> Grant Dietz is too young to have met the former general, former president, mm -hmm. but you can make that connection for them. I wanted to remind people that that's what you get here. Mm -hmm. Lewis is certainly not the kind of guy who would just try to sell a book. He really loves the history. And when you yep. pick up this book, you're going to, you're going to be passionate like I am and maybe rambling on a little bit. Cause you say this book is, <laughs> this book is great. And I want you to catch Grant fever, catch it from yeah. Lewis Pagan. You won't want to cure. Yeah. <laughs> what I'd like to say too, is getting the opportunity to interview, uh, 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 to interview Grant's great, great grandson also help remind me because so much time, because so many times we talk about the presidents and you really do just think of them as almost like mythological figures. Like they're so distant uh, that they're these statues or, but getting to interview him helped remind me that, that I'm writing about someone's family member. That when I write about his final suffering and his death and his funeral and the building of the tomb and the conditions of the tomb, this isn't just a president that's a face on the wall or is in marble or is on the books behind me. But this is also someone's great, great grandfather, too, that's going through this story. So for me, that really helped personalize the story for me, too, as I was telling it. In Grant's tomb, you bring us back to that moment of the dedication of the memorial. William McKinley is there. And as our last Civil War president, that always struck me as a bit of synergy. He would have served under Grant. And he also here he is following him into the White House. Such a poignant moment. You have Theodore Roosevelt there, who is our only president who was born in Manhattan. So this is his old stomping ground. In fact, he went to Columbia, didn't, didn't graduate from there, but he did attend there for law school for a brief time. So say we are Gilded Age Americans and you're calling me up. Well, I guess you're not, maybe probably not calling me in 1897 because I wouldn't have a phone. You're a real modern guy. You don't like the past. News, so you probably would have a phone, but I'll anyway, send you, you, send, <laughs> you send me a telegram and you say, hey, you have to come to this event and see this dedication. How do you pitch it to Americans then? Mm -hmm. And give us an idea how you pitch it to them now. Once we are free to travel again, why should Americans go see that historic moment if they could in 1897, but also visit when they can, when they come to New York City with so much <clears throat> else to see? Why go check out who's buried in Grant's tomb? Mm -hmm. So April 27th was the dedication. Grover Cleveland was also there. So the former governor of New York. So you have uh, two... Uh, two presidents, one former, one current, one future president there. First, uh, it wouldn't take too much convincing because at this point, Grant is still riding his incredible popularity. When he passed away, he was the most popular man in America. He was beloved in the North and the South by Democrats and Republicans, by whites and African-Americans. He was even arguably the most famous person in the world because after his administration, he traveled the world for two and a half years and was given this hero's welcome wherever he went. 
at the dedication 12 years later, he's still incredibly popular. And it's also the tomb becomes this focal point for civil war reconciliation. Even Grant's death and Grant's funeral are these points of civil war reconciliation, which is evidenced by the let us have peace that's carved above the entrance. So hundreds of thousands of people come to see this, again, this just incredible Gilded Age tomb. It's the largest tomb that's ever been built in America. It's 150 feet tall. It's prominent on the banks of the Hudson. At the time, there's not too many other buildings around there. You see this on the horizon for blocks and blocks away, and it's just, it's incredible to see it. So it doesn't take too much motivation to be there at the time. Today, you could go and see it, see all the fruit of all this work by the Grant Monument Association, see what mattered so much to the people that were there at the time, see how they overcame that lackluster financing and all the things that they had to fight, the ideas they had to jettison. Originally, I always remember hearing that they wanted to have it extend all the way down to the Hudson. People had different ideas for it. There's not many places that we can visit up there that, that would be from that period that were so significant. You could see the George Washington Bridge now, but that's not there at the time. So this lets you stand there, stand where Americans would have stood on that day. There's that ginkgo tree, and that's an example of how people around the world loved him. That comes from China. The, the government of China plants that there. And mm -hmm. this is also a time where there weren't many trees in Manhattan. And so that was significant that here they come and put a tree. I'll be rolling the pictures of the of the monument at the time. You can see it's not like it is today where you have beautiful towering trees to shade you while you go and skateboard or you go and you play chess behind it or you go and just gaze up at it or you sit on those benches. It's, it's really nice that it's still living. William McKinley, yeah. his monument in Canton, Ohio is much the same way. People run up and down the steps and they exercise and that was a place I believe it was called Soldier Hill, where he used to take his wife to go and they would have picnics there. And so I like that those, even though they're places where a president has died and it's a little bit bittersweet, it's nice that people still keep it alive, that there's still life in it. And I like that people helped him at the time. People loved him so much, like Mark Twain, who plays a huge role in getting those memoirs published. People wanted to help him. And the fact that he wasn't a guy who asked for help, he was never going to put his hand out and say, hey, I'm going to cash in on my name. He has that unfortunate thing that happens where he gets swindled, but he, he loses all his money too. He didn't say, well, give me your money. I'm not putting my own in. He loses it too, unfortunately. But he tells us something about his life and about his character that Mark Twain has to go and help him, give him the advance, not let him get really screwed over by a publisher. And you're in the yeah. book business. You understand what that would be like, right? It tells us something about him. And what does it tell you? When you think about him fighting cancer in those last months and Mark Twain comes in and helps him, what do, what do you think that that tells us? Because Mark Twain is also a towering figure, maybe the only person of the era that possibly rivaled Grant, that they joined forces here in this crossover comic to get this memoir published. He was so humble and so beloved by so many. But you get really kind of also ties into the significance of the tomb. Because where else in the country at the time would, would former Confederates, former Union soldiers, former enslaved individuals, uh, Democrats and Republicans would all have one altar to worship at, uh, would all come to pay homage at the same location at the same time. Uh, so, and that, that was also the man. Uh, he was beloved throughout the country. He was very humble. Uh, he never asked for help for, or, or, or I mean, wasn't one to ask for help, but, but this was the Gilded Age too, where people would bestow gifts upon him, like his house in Long Branch or like his uh, brownstone in New York City. But when he needed the help, he wouldn't take it. Uh, so that was different. Before he got, he got gifts, he didn't really need it. Uh, but when he needed it, then he wouldn't. Uh, then he was too dignified to do that. And people offered just to give him the money to get him back on his feet. He relied on, on one aspect that, that people were clamoring for. He had this option to write his memoirs. Uh, but yeah, people like Mark Twain, they wanted to help him. And he became friendly with him. Mark Twain, a former Confederate soldier, was friendly with Grant, always admired Grant for years. He called himself Grant intoxicated at one point during his life. And 
uh, yeah, Grant had secured, had gone right uh, from the doctors who told me I had cancer, went right to the publishing house to tell them I'm ready to write my memoirs. And uh, luckily he didn't sign on the dotted line there. The contract was a standard contract that they offered him that, that they would have given any other author. Uh, but Mark Twain looks it over and says, you're General Grant, <laughs> you're worth much more than this. They're just giving you the contract they'd give to anybody. Uh, so Mark Twain is also starting his own publishing house at the time. So he signs Grant, gives him this very generous uh, contract. Uh, so the first book that Twain publishes is, is, uh, 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 is Huck Finn. Second book is Grant's Memoirs. It becomes incredibly popular. Grant doesn't know that at the time, obviously, but in the end, it secured about uh, uh, about $450,000 for Julia and puts her in financial security for the rest of her life. It's a number one best-selling book when it comes out. So Grant's royalties are more than any other author in history at this time. It's such a wild success and Grant never knows it. But I did want to flash up a picture here for people watching via YouTube, but even those listening, it'll be cautionary note because I was at a presidential library. They said to us, we have a signed copy of Ulysses S. Grant's <laughs> memoir. And they, they yeah. brought it out, as you can see in the picture with the white gloves and said it's signed by the general. And I had to, I had to break the news to them that, well, there's no signed copies. That's how I know you don't have a signed copy. That's yeah. printed afterwards. So that, that's a little bit of trivia. And I would hate for somebody to go online and pay because they're out there. People claim that they're signed first editions and they are yeah. not, correct? Don't waste your money. Yeah, it didn't come out. It came out in two volumes, uh, but that was after he died. And Grant only finished the manuscript on July 19th. And then he dies four days later. So this really, doctors are concerned too during these final months because Grant is so focused on, uh, uh, on finishing his memoirs, they realize once he's done, he's going to lose his will to live. He's going to lose his purpose to live. And that's exactly what happened. Four days after finishing the book, final touches on it, that's when he dies. You say in Grant's tomb that in those final years, immediately after the tomb was built, Grant's tomb was a site for reconciliation and patriotism and education. Thus, yeah. here are former bitter enemies that are respecting each other. Guys like Mark Twain, even though he wasn't much of a soldier and got out of there quick, but mm -hmm. he was a symbol. Let us have peace, yep. those simple words. How do you hope Americans in 2021 will see the monument today as a symbol of this warrior who sought to make peace, but also as something to inspire us today so that we may make peace and we may come together across the lines that divide us and make that more perfect union that Grant really till the very end cared so much about. So Grant fought hard for reconciliation. And this was 20 years after the Civil War, the country was still greatly divided. But to be clear, Grant was never an apologist for slavery. He was, uh, because very early on after the Civil War, there was the, the Southern mythology started where uh, where the Civil War wasn't fought over slavery, it was states' rights, it was other causes. Uh, so Grant was clear, even in his memoirs, that the cause of the Civil War will have to be attributed to slavery. Uh, and there were some people that were concerned that, you know what, this, this brotherhood and this friendliness is maybe going too far. It's great to welcome back the Johnny Rebs, but we can't forget there was a right side and there was a wrong side. So some people were concerned that it might be going too far. But Grant was always, even during the Civil War, he was very magnanimous to captured Southern soldiers. Uh, when he was in Southern territory, he was very gracious to, to Southern citizens, even though they'd say to his face how horrible he is and how great the Southerners are, and he'd just smile and, uh, and puff on his cigar. Uh, so he had always believed in reconciliation and let us have peace in moving on and becoming the uh, uh, the American family together again. Uh, and I just think it's such an important uh, step in just the American story of, of increased freedom and increased civil rights. Uh, and Grant is just such an important person in that. He wasn't perfect. Uh, he had his flaws. Uh, but I just think that there's so much at the tomb to remind us of reconciliation and uh, doesn't matter what we're fighting about or what we're divided about. Uh, it's just still, it's a great 
place to remember that the country was a lot worse off at some point and we got through it. Uh, and, and it was because in part to this man and his legacy. Well, Lewis, I opened with a pop culture reference and I'm gonna close with one. It's from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> how we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life, wouldn't you say? Here's another soldier statesman who tells us a lesson there, albeit a fictional one. Ulysses S. Grant is a very real figure. And so I wanna thank you, Lewis Pacone, for sharing the story of this really fitting monument. It's a monument that we can visit today. We can maybe catch some of what Gilded Age people felt about Grant, what he meant to that America and what he can still mean to our America. I wish you the best of luck with Grant's tomb. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I say, James G. Blaine or not, keep that beard. <laughs> thank you, I think I will. It was great <laughs> speaking with you, Dean. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. And for yet another great book, get to work on the next one. Keep writing. Already in. <laughs> Again, the book is Grant's Tomb, the epic death of Ulysses S. Grant and the making of an American pantheon. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying the book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Louis Pacone for another fun interview and for giving us the behind the scenes story of Grant's last days and the enduring landmark that serves as his final resting place. I also wanna mention a little story that you can't find at lewispacone.com or by following Lewis and I at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You can see in the picture I'm showing now that that's me with a wicker chair it's a pretty basic wicker chair, nothing flashy about it, much like Ulysses S. Grant. Well, that's a chair that Grant sat in, and they offered both Lewis and I the opportunity to sit in it at the Ocean Township Museum down at the Jersey Shore. And I very wisely and Lewis very wisely said, I don't think so. Neither of us wanted the headline in the paper the next day to be, Fat Historians Ruin Priceless Artifact. But we do regret it now. And we talked about that before we started. We said, boy, we really wish we'd taken the opportunity to sit in that chair, but it's always better not to live in history if you're going to be the one that ruins it. Remember Lewis's previous books are Where the Presidents Were Born, The History and Preservation of the Presidential Birthplaces, and The President is Dead, The Extraordinary Stories of the Presidential Deaths, Final Days, Burials, and Beyond. For more on the man inside the Western Hemisphere's largest mausoleum, I'd recommend my conversations with Donald L. Miller. We talked about Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy, as well as Paul Cahan's The Presidency of Ulysses S. Grant. There's Pulitzer Prize finalist S.C. Gwynn's Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War. And I hope if you want to get to know the general better, you will definitely, definitely listen to those interviews and pick up all of these books. And then when somebody asks you who's buried in Grant's tomb, you could turn the tables on them and tell them all about this amazing American. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all new interview right here on iHeartRadio. Watch us on YouTube, catch us on iTunes or wherever you're listening now. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with Louis Pacone and I today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.